It's been really amazing watching the continued growth of the technology, the continued growth of the market, the continued expansion into new applications, all of the Internet of Things developments. And Wi-Fi 6, and most importantly, Wi-Fi 6E, that has been very exciting to see. I think the opening up of the 6 gigahertz band to Wi-Fi is tremendously important. All right, welcome to The Signal. I'm Martha DeGrasse here again for Wi-Fi Alliance. And this is our podcast where we bring you the inside track on Wi-Fi. These are meant to be smart conversations with industry leaders. And we definitely have a guest who fits that description today. We are delighted to welcome Greg Ennis. He is the author of the book, Beyond Everywhere, How Wi-Fi Became the World's Most Beloved Technology. Greg, welcome to The Signal. Thank you, Martha. It's a real pleasure being here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this podcast. Um, it is not often on this podcast that we get to talk about international diplomatic intrigue or techno-political <laughs> conflict, but uh, I understand that these are both themes in your book, and I, I appreciate the advanced copy of the book. I know it's out everywhere July 18th, but yeah, it's kind of a business history, a technical history, and it looks like it's going to be a great read. So I guess the first thing we should do is sort of explain how you came to be the author of this book, what your role was. I think that along with a couple of other people, you wrote the proposal in 1993 that was adopted as the foundational technology for what ultimately became Wi-Fi, right? That's right. Yeah, that was in 1993. Yeah. So, you know, I retired as VP of technology of the Wi-Fi Alliance back in 2016 I basically held that position since the very founding of the Wi-Fi Alliance in 1999. My work in wireless lands actually goes back before that selection of the foundation protocol. I was very involved in some of the early wireless land projects in the late 1980s, right at the very beginning. And one in particular that ended up being very crucial to the subsequent development of the Wi-Fi technology was a project that we did for the Chicago Board of Trade and the Chicago Commodities Exchange. That project was actually kicked off by an FBI sting operation on corrupt commodities traders. And as a result of that, I mean, there were multiple convictions and indictments of these corrupt traders. But the most important thing that came out of that was that the, the federal government required the Chicago Board of Trade to replace their manual trading system on the trading floor with a network of wireless trading terminals. So this is back in 1989. So that was a very competitive procurement. There were numerous companies competing for that. And I was involved in a team designing protocols for that system. We ended up winning that procurement, but there were other companies involved in that. And I think a lot of the people who ended up contributing to the development of the Wi-Fi protocols, kind of cut their teeth on that program. Uh, this was before there was any standard in place. So the project concepts that came out of that, I think, ultimately found their way into Wi-Fi. So that, that was really my first big entry into wireless LAN protocols. And it was so after which, that. What company were you with when you won that job? It was actually a small development company called Synerdyne. 
It was a team of companies. It was Centerdyne, a company called Agilis, a company called Desktop, and then Seiko, the Japanese consumer electronics manufacturer, was actually building the actual terminal. But my responsibility as part of that team was to actually design the, the wireless protocols for that system. And, you know, many of the concepts that got developed in that program ended up finding their way in, into Wi-Fi. Because as you mentioned earlier, it was in 1993 where, along with two co-authors, we developed the technical protocol proposal that ultimately got adopted within the IEEE 802.11 committee as the foundation for what became the Wi-Fi standard. And were those two co-authors also, had they been part of the CBOE project? Well, one of the companies that was participating, that was a three-company proposal. It was Symbol Technology, so I was working for at the time, and then uh, Zircom. And then the third company in that proposal was NCR. Zircom, actually, it wasn't Zircom itself, but the people from Zircom who participated in that project, Ken Baiba in particular, he was very instrumental in those early days in the IEEE committee of hashing out what the Wi-Fi protocol would ultimately come to be. So Symbol, Zircom, and NCR were the three companies that, represented by you three people, wrote that initial protocol. That's Symbol right. is now part of Zebra, is that right? That's right. They got bought, I believe, first by Motorola. And then uh, uh, this is this is traditional in this industry, right? The companies get absorbed into other companies uh, every day, it seems. Right, right. NCR, I think, is still is still around. But well, the NCR team. I mean, they went through. They became part of Lucent, and then they AT and T, and they went through their own uh, changes of corporate affiliations. Yeah, and of course, I haven't read your whole book, but I looked at it enough to know that there's a little bit of back and forth, and things weren't always super chill and happy between all those companies. So give us a little bit of a flavor of some of the challenges subsequent to 1993 as things move forward and, and these players tried to develop this. Yeah. So once that vote happened within IEEE on the foundation protocol for the standard, then it, it went into a phase of developing the initial IEEE specification, which was published. So this is the original 802.11 specification, no A or B or whatever nomenclature after it. And that was in 1997 that that was adopted. And it sounds crazy now, but that was a two megabit per second standard. And so all the attention around the time that that standard actually got published was focused on getting higher data rates. And there was a, an effort to create what was called the high rate version of 802.11, which ultimately was 802.11b. But that was an extremely contentious battle with multiple proposals on the table leading up to it. I mean, at, at one point, there were actually accusations of voting irregularities that <laughs> ended up. Yeah, yeah it, it sounds like we're talking about, you know, the U.S. in it 2024. Does. There were accusations of voting irregularities that ended up putting the, the process on hold, it stopped it flat, and it ended up having the result that the, the direction that things seemed to be heading was changed. And ultimately, there was a compromise proposal from Lucent, which was the NCR folks in Holland, and Harris, which was a major Wi-Fi chip developer at the time. And their compromise proposal ended up finally getting adopted, and that became 802.11. 
B. And so that combination of the medium access control protocol that was selected back in the 1993 timeframe, the DFW-MAC protocol in 1993, that combined with the new high rate 802.11B physical layer, that's what became subsequently named as Wi-Fi. And where did the Wi-Fi name come from? Like a marketing agency or do you know? Yes, I, I do know. So we decided to form a trade organization, which ultimately became the Wi-Fi Alliance, although initially it wasn't called the Wi-Fi Alliance because one of our first tasks was to choose the name Wi-Fi. And we didn't have that at the beginning. So the organization was called the Wireless Ethernet Compatibility Alliance. And this organization was really started by me and a handful of others because at the time there was a competing technology out there called HomeRF that was backed by many major companies like Intel and Microsoft. And this was a competing wireless LAN technology to the IEEE standard that was focused on the home market. And they had a lot of momentum and um, it looked like that could end up winning the day and all of our hopes for a, an 802.11 standard really being successful were looking dim. And we tried to convince them to adopt parts of the 802 standard and, and this kind of thing. Ultimately, we decided our best strategy was to form our own organization and to form a bigger, better organization based on what we felt was better technology. And that was really the instigating factor in having us create what became the Wi-Fi Alliance. So that was in uh, 1999. And the, like I said, the, the first task was the selection of the name. And we hired a branding company called Interbrand. And we ended up settling on Wi-Fi. And then we launched Wi-Fi along with announcing the formation of this organization and announcing the, the establishment of an interoperability certification program. We launched that in Atlanta in September of 1999. And that was really the first launch of Wi-Fi. Yeah, that was at a trade show, right? That was. It was at the uh, N plus I trade show in Atlanta, the Net World plus Interop, I guess that was called. So, yeah. so you must have been there, right? Was it really like in a booth, on a stage? Tell uh, us what uh, that was like. Actually, we set up a press event. We invited analysts and press saying that we had some major announcements. You know, we were trying to bring, I guess today we'd call them influencers. Right? Yep. We trying to bring in and the did in they show up? Did, were they interested? And they, did, and they did show up. Nice. And so we did a, uh, a whole presentation and I batted cleanup in that presentation. You know, we announced what the organization was. We announced the members got started by six companies. That was Symbol, 3Com, Nokia, Lucent, Aeronet, and why am I? Uh, there's a well, people got to buy the book if they want to read That's it. That's right. Find out how the six uh, and then, uh, well, I said Lucent and 3Com. Did I say 3Com? Anyway, there's six companies and we announced the new members joining, including Apple, that was a major win for us. And we announced the certification program and the, the logo. We announced the name and the, and the certification program. You know, it's funny, I, since I was the last person to present that day, I can say that I am the first person who ever had the name Wi-Fi on one of his slides <laughs> because 
it was right after we announced the name. And then I talked about our certification program and I, I could put Wi-Fi, the logo and the name on slides. So, 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 that was a so really Apple fun day. was on board. That's huge. Because you already said that Intel and Microsoft were promoting this Home RF competitor. Right. So it's probably very helpful to you to have Apple. Were they already putting it into Macs or thinking about that? Or So just around that same time, Apple had contracted with the NCR team to develop an 802.11 interface for Apple products and Apple branded it as airport. And this was happening right about at that same time. I think Steve Jobs announced this at one of his classy Steve Jobs showmanship um, announcements. I believe he he used a, a hula hoop around the Mac that he was holding in order to uh, demonstrate that it's connected to the internet, even without any wires. And so that was a big deal. Uh, we were still at the time, you know, a little concerned that Apple might take this technology in a proprietary direction. Yeah. You know, they, you think? they have <laughs> rights. I mean, that's something that they commonly do. And so it was a big deal for them to join the Wi-Fi Alliance, Weka at the time, because basically in that way, they were announcing, this is going to be standard. We are not going to do something that is going to be different from the rest of the industry. We're going to work to help promote this universal standard that all these other companies are backing. And so that, that was a big deal. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, you've talked about Steve Jobs. That's a household name. Any other players in this story that people might know the names of or players that people should know the names of? Well, back at the very beginning in, in 1985, when the FCC established these new rules, and this was a, a radical experiment, of course, it's been successful beyond their wildest dreams, but they established new rules allowing low power devices to operate in unlicensed bands and that ruling was established in 1985. And the person who was most responsible for championing that within the FCC was Michael Marcus. So the industry certainly owes a, a big debt to him. My co-authors on the DFW Mac proposal back in 93 were Phil Bellinger from uh, Zircom and Wim Diepstraten from NCR. Of course, the, the NCR team, you know, Vic Hayes, chaired the IEEE 802.11 committee through most of its early years. But the, the rest of the NCR team, Case Lanks and Bruce Tuck, uh, these were all people who were very instrumental in, in helping to get Wi-Fi to where it is today. And uh, I honor all of them. Yeah. Okay. Well, are there any other challenges that you can highlight here? I'm sure the, the book contains a lot of challenges that were overcome, but are there any others that are stories you'd like to highlight while we're here on the podcast? Well, so right after we announced Wi-Fi and started up the certification program and really launched, launched it to the world, and we started certifying products. And in 2001, the original encryption scheme in the 802.11 standard was broken by cryptographic researchers. So as you can imagine, this was a real crisis. Suddenly we were, we were being called up by, I mean, I had to do interviews with the Wall Street Journal and what to explain what we were doing to recover from this. And of course, what we were doing was to develop a, an enhancement, a new encryption scheme that would be folded into the standard. And IEEE was working on this, but of course their time frame for doing that was going to be quite a ways off. 
And so we had a real challenge that there was a near-term public relations problem, certainly, but you know, a real problem that, uh, that the encryption scheme had been broken. And we needed to solve it in some kind of an interim fashion to help us move forward until the new solution came up. Was and it broken by some bad actors or what? No, no, no. It okay. was broken by academic cryptographic researchers. Uh, Just from, trying to see. Yeah, okay. from, from the University of California, Berkeley. Um, okay. And so it turns out that what we ended up doing, I think, had a major impact on the ultimate success of Wi-Fi, not because of the technical thing that we did, but because we ended up establishing a cooperative working relationship between the IEEE 802.11 committee and the Wi-Fi Alliance to work on this in conjunction to solve this problem where we work together to identify draft sections of a draft document and to build a certification program around that long before the ultimate standard on the new security enhancements was finalized. And that was a, that was a radical step. It helped us get through that interim period. But the most important thing that came out of that incident was that that really established a working relationship between the IEEE 802.11 committee, which would continue to go on and develop foundational technologies and uh, new generations of core Wi-Fi technologies, and the Wi-Fi Alliance, which of course was, was already doing the interoperability certifications, but now would contribute in the ways of developing requirements and even uh, new technology enhancements in addition to those that the IEEE was doing. And that working relationship has continued to this day. And I think that that is a core reason for Wi-Fi's ultimate success as it exploded into our lives. Yeah, for sure. Okay, we still haven't gotten to the international diplomatic intrigue. What is that? So Wi-Fi right off the bat was a global phenomenon, right? I mean, the development of it was global. The book bounces back and forth between Asia and Europe and North America as we're developing all this stuff. And so we knew it was going to be a, a global phenomenon, but there was one country in particular that was resisting, and that country was China. And China, in the, the early 2000 timeframe and you know, into like 2005 and, and even later, there were forces within the Chinese government and with the Chinese industrial sector pushing for a national technology as an alternative, as a competitor to Wi-Fi that would be the, the standard wireless LAN within China. And of course, we felt this was not something that made sense. We very strongly felt that the, the Chinese population should benefit from the same positive things that the rest of the world was seeing with Wi-Fi. And we undertook a very, very intense process. I mean, I, I looked at my old passport. I, I took 13 trips to China over the course of three years, meeting with regulators, meeting with the trade press, meeting with industry representatives. And it wasn't just me. I mean, we had all sorts of people from the Wi-Fi industry contributing to this. I mean, ultimately, we, we ended up having a huge success with the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, installing a massive Wi-Fi network. Uh, this was really the first Wi-Fi network for an Olympics venue. And it was really a, a coming out party for Wi-Fi in China. 
it was tremendously successful. And um, I think ultimately things progressed as we were hoping. But the diplomatic intrigue, this got tied up in the uh, international trade negotiations involving Colin Powell, the U.S. Secretary of State, and and the vice premier of China. I mean, they were negotiating about arcane issues of, you know, wireless LAN encryption, along with their discussions about truck tire tariffs and uh, whatever else. There were accusations of restraint of trade. There was the potential this was going to go before the World Trade Organization. And at one point, the Chinese government was disallowing the incorporation of Wi-Fi in any smartphones. And oh. that that was a real obstacle, even for the iPhone, to penetrate China in the early days. What year was that when they were doing that? Uh, that was uh, probably 2007, 2008. Oh, okay. I, I so right I'll, when... I'll have to go back and look in the book. Yeah, no, I'm just wondering, like, that was, I mean, that would have been right when the iPhone was taking off or starting yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. Okay, well, this has been a great taste of what your book has in store. You're obviously an expert on the history of Wi-Fi, but while you're here, we'd like to ask you about the future of Wi-Fi, especially Wi-Fi 7. What are your thoughts about what's next? Sure. So, you know, when I retired as VP of Technology for the Wi-Fi Alliance back in 2016, I, I said to the board of directors of the Wi-Fi Alliance, I said, well, from now on, I'm going to be cheering you on from the sidelines. It really has been a thrill to be on the sidelines for the past few years. Of course, I've focused on writing a book, but it's been really amazing watching the continued growth of the technology, the continued growth of the market, the continued expansion into new applications, all of the Internet of Things developments, and Wi-Fi 6, and most importantly, Wi-Fi 6E. That has been very exciting to see. I think the opening up of the six gigahertz band to Wi-Fi is tremendously important. I'm very happy to see the Wi-Fi Alliance taking the lead in, in helping to get that established worldwide. And that use of the six gigahertz band opens up all sorts of new opportunities for denser environments, higher speeds. And now Wi-Fi 7 is going to just continue that with the ability to support 320 megahertz bands, double the bandwidth of the bands that have been used in Wi-Fi 6. That just increases the speed and throughput potentials, plus the facilities for low latency applications and deterministic applications. Those aspects of Wi-Fi 7 are going to be very important as we get into our new world of augmented reality, like the Apple product that just yeah. got introduced. So I've really enjoyed watching all the developments since I retired, and I'm going to enjoy watching them further as we keep going here. Absolutely. Okay, well, your book title appropriately describes Wi-Fi as the world's most beloved technology. When do you think you first became aware that Wi-Fi was sort of a global cultural phenomenon? Yeah, so back in the early 2000s, as we were first starting to introduce it, and products were starting to hit the market, we were very amused to see it develop this reputation of being something that was was hip or countercultural. I mean, the word most associated with Wi-Fi was the word free, right? Free Wi-Fi. It was something that you set up yourself. It was your own. You didn't have to deal with the big telecommunication companies. And that was very amusing. And it really caught on even in the early days. And when Wi-Fi started to become like a, a Jeopardy answer and a crossword puzzle clue 
and uh, it, it was used in dialogues in TV sitcoms. And, and when it was New Yorker cartoons would come up out about Wi-Fi. This was all, it kind of demonstrated that, you know, people love this. You know, this is a real part of their lives. And I think that continues. You know, when I was writing my book, when I first thinking of the concepts of the book, I would talk to my non-technical friends just to get their feedback on some of the ideas. And the universal reaction that I got from my non-technical friends was that Wi-Fi is something, I mean, it's almost something comfortable. It's like a friend. You know, it's something that you're not just using it at your work, but it's in your home. It's part of your family life. I mean, when we invite visitors over to our to our homes, we share our Wi-Fi with them. And I think the general public really does love Wi-Fi. And there was a, an editorial review for the book that just came up where the reviewer indicated that he described the book as an accessible account of how Wi-Fi became a crucial part of our work, society, and lives. And I'm very happy with that word accessible that he put in there because one of my goals has been to expose this story to the broad audience. I think it's a story that a broader audience than the Wi-Fi cognoscenti really will connect with. And so when I saw that review, I was I was happy to see that because it, it sounds like maybe I, I hit the sweet spot of telling this story in a way that will be appealing to the general public. So I, I really do think that Wi-Fi is the, the world's most beloved technology. All right. Well, we will all look forward to finding out more on July 18th when the book comes out, Beyond Everywhere, How Wi-Fi Became the World's Most Beloved Technology. Greg Ennis, formerly of the Wi-Fi Alliance for more than a decade, what, 16 years? Uh, Yeah, it was 16 years, right. All right. Well, thanks for coming back to join us on the podcast. It was great to have you here on The Signal. Okay. Thank you very much, Martha. I enjoyed it. And that is our show. Please don't forget to check the show notes for links to the resources we discussed today, including how to buy Greg's book. And please be sure to follow The Signal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. You can get all the latest episodes straight to your device on Wi-Fi. For all things Wi-Fi, check out y-fi.org. That is the Wi-Fi Alliance. I'm Martha DeGrasse. Thank you so much for listening and please join us next time on The Signal.